This is Without Compromise, a show that explores what happens when you won't settle for anything less than your crazy ideas. We'll talk to athletes, founders, adventurers, and entrepreneurs of all kinds about living without compromise. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Welcome to the show. We're programmed for survival, so our instinct is to give up on these situations, to move away from them. I thought if I didn't sign up for that race, that I was just going to disappear. It doesn't have to be these big, huge things that everyone thinks you need to do to make a difference. If you spend any time outdoors, you know that there's unfortunately a lot of litter and trash on trails. Even the most pristine wilderness is sometimes, you know, you can find like a wrapper of a, you know, candy bar or a granola bar or something way out in the woods. And if you're in a city somewhere, especially one on the coast, uh, you know, that trash doesn't just stay there. If no one picks it up, a lot of it ends up washing into a storm drain, which goes out to a body of water, a lake or a river, and eventually to the ocean a lot of times. And a lot of it floats. Pete here, who we're interviewing, saw this problem when he was traveling around the world as a yacht racer, a high-end yacht racer, wanted to do something bigger with his life just than make boats go faster, and had a friend that was working on this idea or had this idea but didn't know how to do it. Pete came along and helped make this thing called Seabin happen. And y'all know here at Athletic Brewing, we love taking care of trails. We love taking care of the outdoors through our Two for the Trails program. 2% of all our revenue, up to $2 million, goes towards basically making the outdoors more accessible and cleaner and, and, and better maintained. We love this idea with Seabin because here's how they do it. Imagine a filter on uh, like an aquarium, a fish tank, but blow that up to be a big thing that you put on a dock at a marina where a lot of boats are and there's a lot of activity and that's where a lot of water comes in from streets and from cities. And there's a lot of stuff floating and just this this filter, like the size of a five-gallon bucket, just sitting there filtering literally millions of gallons of water over the lifetime of this filter and just capturing everything, all the microplastic, oil even, all sorts of trash. Anything that it gets in there, it catches. And so Athletic Brewing and Seabin, we sponsored one of their bins uh, over on the West Coast by our San Diego brewery. And our team a couple weeks ago for World Ocean Day went out there to see kind of how it's been doing and what's been done. So we pulled everything out, counted all the trash, And what was so cool about this story is Pete realized that it wasn't the trash being removed from all these sea bins all over the world. It wasn't the sea bins themselves. It was the data they collected that was so valuable and so impactful because it was letting them know what actually does get captured, what actually is out there, and where all that trash begins that was of surprising importance to Pete and his team to the point where like data collection is a much bigger part of what they do than they ever thought it would be. So we're going to sit down with Pete today to hear this story of how this got started, pivots they made and where they are today. They're actually in the middle of fundraising. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to their website. I think there's like five days left of it. They're really just getting started. So we're very excited to be partnering with them through our Two for the Trails program. And we hope you enjoy this story of how Seabin got started and what they're doing and where they're going from here. And don't forget, pick up your trash. All right, folks, you heard a little of Pete's story in the intro, but we're going to welcome Pete Zaglinski. How you doing? Yo, good, thanks. Uh, it's 10 p.m. here in Sydney, Australia, but I'm pretty pumped because uh, I'm still working and, yeah, stoked to 
get a bit of support from you guys and love what you do and pumped. <laughs> yeah, pumped, man. Well, I tell you what, it's been a long day for you. You, you opened up some uh, a pretty big step in Seabin's history and, and, and programming. T- tell us a little bit about what makes today so special. Well, uh, today, God, where do I start? Um, dropped my two little boys off at mum and dad's house, got on an aeroplane, flew down to Sydney, supposed to meet with the Ministry of Environment, got cancelled, and then uh, we uh, launched our seed round three uh, using uh, equity crowdfunding, crowdsource funding. We're aiming to raise $3 million in the next three weeks. I think we've just raised about $360,000 in six hours. Yeah, pretty pumped, dude. It's, um, we've, we've created this raise to... Um, we're sort of we're not targeting like venture capitalists or impact investors, but we're targeting like regular people, moms and pops, and you know friends and family and that sort of thing. And we've like kept the raise, uh, the investment minimum to two hundred and fifty bucks. So you know, like it it kind of just makes it a bit relatable and accessible to normal people because uh, we really want shareholders that we can help us to lobby government to to get the pollution out of the water. Yeah, it's quite strategic, but. You know, really wholesome. Ah, oh, big exciting day. This is awesome. But I want to go all the way back. I want to go all the way back to what inspired this. I don't know if you get tired of telling the story, but I think it's important to know what you were doing, what you're into, kind of where in life you were when I don't know this idea came about. Tell us what kind of got this whole thing going. Was it an experience, a trip? What was it? Ah, uh, dude, it was a bit of everything. It was. Uh... You know, I, I only started adulting at the age of 37 and I'm 40. <laughs> people don't, yeah, don't, don't get too worried about like you're not crushing it at life because you're like 30 or 28 or something. Like, man, it took me to 37 to get my together. But um, I needed to hear that. Thank I, you, <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I had to go through two other lives to get to where I needed to be for my light bulb moment. So my, my first career like was a product designer, industrial designer and and the irony was that I specialized in plastic in- injection molded products. So I would uh, design and engineer and commercialize super exciting things like toasters and kettles and egg boilers, you know, like kitchen appliances. And, I, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that some of the stuff that I designed ends up in the water. And I, I'd like to think that we've sort of captured it as well. Because it was plastic products that no one really needed. I mean, maybe you needed to boil some eggs, but you know, it changed every year. It's like fashion. You got like, you know, one color's fashionable this year, and so all the kitchen appliances are a certain theme, and then it changes the next year. And you know, we never designed anything to be repaired. It was just you know, chintzy, cheap, chuck away things. And it was really cool to do the design and engineering, but it really sucked to to build products that weren't really needed or weren't designed for longevity. And so I quit and then I, I ended up traveling over to Brazil and just went surfing for like four months and lived off like $5 a day. And, and uh, uh, some friends found out I had a visa to go and work in Italy. So I was like on this trip around the world with a surfboard and they called me and they're like, oh, you know, come and work for us. I'm like, oh, what are you doing? And it turned out they were building America's racing, uh, racing yachts uh, America's Cup racing yachts uh, for a company called Prada, that big fashion label. And uh, I was like, yeah, cool. Like, I don't know what to do. And they're like, don't worry. Just, you know, you got your visa, you're legal, you know how to use power tools. So 
come and give us a hand. And this snowballed into a career where I traveled the world for 12 years, living out of a suitcase, surfboard, bag of tools, and uh, built high-performance racing yachts. It was like the pit crew for a Formula One. And, and that's where I met my uh, co-founder, Andrew, uh, who, and he had the idea. He was the, He's the inventor, and he had this idea that stemmed from a, a, a lateral idea of if you got trash cans on land, why don't we put them in the water? I was like, uh, you know, what are you going to do with this idea, Andrew? And he's like, oh, I don't know, you know, sell it for like 50 bucks at Home Depot. I was like, dude, like this is a game changer. I think you can do better than that. He's like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, I, I, I used to be this industrial designer, product designer, and farmers would come in. They got these like amazing ideas of these like prototypes that you know held together with like duct tape and sticker flex and sticky tape and stuff and and then i'll commercialize it and so i was like well you know i i can help you and we just sort of jumped in and went for it you saw farmers who like you said man some of the smartest people ingenious people are people you don't expect and a lot of times those ideas they don't have the resources to to yeah like even make a good prototype much less you know bring it to market yeah, well, my my dad was a, a he was like a, a timber cutter. I don't know what you guys call it, like a, a lumberjack or something like. So we we grew up poor as hell, and uh, I didn't realize at the time. But you know, dad was always out in the in his shed, you know, building and welding and doing this and doing that and fixing engines. And I didn't realize we were poor. We just didn't have the money for other people to do it. So he did it himself. And I, I feel like that rubbed off a little bit and, uh, you know, just really MacGyvering things to make it work. And I don't, I don't know. I've, I've always just really liked tinkering and, you know, pulling toys apart and not being able to put them back together and stuff. Did building yachts for, uh, for luxury clothes companies feel better or feel more more aligned than plastic mold or plastic injection molding nah no it was probably worse um (laughs) seriously like you know the thing that kept me in there was like i got to travel the world for free for 12 years like i didn't pay rent i didn't pay for a phone bill like i was just you know we, we were like given everything including like this epic wage where you know, they'd be like, oh, what, what currency do you want to be paid in and what bank account and what country? We're like, oh, um, <laughs> well, here we go. Like, you know, it was the gravy train. It was hard to get off. And uh, the thing, though, that got me to where I needed to be was not having purpose in my life. I was really conscious of it. So I was like, you know, designing um, plastic toasters and, well, not plastic, but injection molded products and toasters and kettles. And there was no purpose to that. You know, it was cool, but uh, it, it kind of wasn't as well. Um, and then the boat building, that was really cool. And I got to travel and I got to save a lot of money and had a lot of freedom and a lot of responsibility as well. But essentially, it was like just building these rich people's toys that they would like, you know, spend weeks at end on regattas to race against each other. It was like 12 billionaires racing against each other to see who's going to win. And it was the most toxic things in the world. It's a Kevlar and carbon fiber and epoxy resin and titanium and like there was nothing sustainable about yacht racing in the high performance world it's like the most toxic in the planet and uh it doesn't break down and um because we're like you know really pushing boundaries in terms of performance and technology your boat would only last for a year or six months or eight months and yeah and then you give it away or you like cut it up with a chainsaw and 
um, you know, like or, or sell it to someone under some kind of NDA because you don't want to give away IP and, you know, design and technology secrets. And there was nothing sustainable about it except the wind that we're using to push them. So, so as you traveled around the world this whole time, did, did you, what did you notice about maybe the state of the ocean? I think the first time I left Australia is when I realized that there was a plastic problem. Uh, in Australia, we've, we've, you know, we, we collect like one plastic item every six seconds in Sydney Harbour. And you just saw it like it looks beautiful, but we've got a real microplastics problem, but it's not as visible or as, you know, the volumes aren't there like, say, Rio de Janeiro or Indonesia uh, in developing countries. And so I grew up surfing on the east coast of Australia and like I've done it since I was like eight years old. I'm 45 now. I just went for a surf two days ago. It was sick. And I only encountered the problem of plastic pollution when I went to Bali or when I went to Mexico or like I, I used to froth out and well, I still do by going to developing countries, you get more bang for your buck and it's more fun to go surf in Mexico. And, uh, but unfortunately you know, in developing countries, there's, uh, a, you know, a lack of infrastructure for, you know, waste disposal or this type of thing. And their priorities are a bit different. And so, you know, traveling to India and China, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, um, you know, just see all this like huge amounts of waste in the water. And I got sick so many times just from handling the, you know, the ropes that we're like, tying the boat up with you, you don't even go in the water you get it on your fingers and then it gets in your skin or you you know eat or something and people have been hospitalized on the team just from touching the water in rio yeah so it was it was hectic it was an eye-opener it helped too you came across uh your co-founder and he started talking what, what what immediately started going through your mind was it like a clear i have to be a part of this or was it did it need to sink in for a while did it feel like the purpose you were looking for? And were you looking at that time? You know what I mean? Were you always kind of just like, what is that thing I'm looking for? Or what? Or did you not even know you needed that? Um, I, I knew that I was lacking a bit of purpose. And so I was like, not proactively looking to fill that gap. But, you know, if an opportunity came past, I'd, I'd definitely, you know, just latch onto it and make it happen. Um you know, when Andrew told me about the Seabin thing, I thought it was epic and it had a lot of, I, I don't know, I, I just I just saw so much opportunity with it, but like we didn't do anything for two or three years because we were on such a good career with, you know, just building boats and going surfing and traveling the world and, you know, it was epic. Um, and so for two, two or three years, I think it was 2013 to 2016, um, we were just, talking about it <laughs> you know meeting up um having a couple of beers or go for a surf or whatever and just you know i kind of i, I quit my job i was living in italy uh building another boat for the italians and we were down at the bottom of the alps uh and it was the middle of winter and and every day it rains uh in the bottom of the alps and you know that it's just dumping on the tops of the mountains and you know, this like fresh powder and stuff and you're stuck in a little factory and, and it was kind of getting to me and I just kept daydreaming about this CBN thing and, uh, you know, something happened at work and I was like, ah, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm done. Like I'm, I quit. And I hadn't told anyone, but like six months or seven months before I'd started saving up 
for the day that I was going to quit. I was just waiting for that little, you know, trigger moment or something. And so I had enough cash to like quit my job, go snowboarding for two weeks, took off, went to the Mentorwise, went to Indonesia, surfed for two weeks there and then got back and yeah, just got into it. What was getting into it? What did that look like? Well, I had to move out of this apartment that my uh, racing team, you know, was paying for. And so I found this epic, I think it was like 1,000 square feet factory um, on the, just on like the, the border of Palma, Mallorca. I was living on an island in Spain and uh, it's just out of the shopping district, but just into like the drugs sort of district. (laughs) And so it was really cheap. And uh, it, it looked like this old derelict building from the front and on the inside was just this like playground sort of thing where I had like my welding machine, I bought a sewing machine and, you know, I was doing all like fiberglassing and design engineering. I bought a, um, a, a 3D printer and uh, yeah, I just, I, I just started designing and trying to refine this prototype that had like 30 moving parts and tried to just get it back to like 10 or 11 moving parts. And uh, yeah, it was really fun. When you were starting to build it and really develop it, how close was that to the original idea? You know what I mean? It was because you, when you go to do something in practice, sometimes it's just like not feasible. What, what, what were you learning about the idea versus the reality early on? Oh, so, you know, there was a, there was like a bunch of moving parts, but um, there was one component that just, turn the world on its head it's the million dollar billion dollar you know idea that there was this one component and it was like the most craziest obvious thing in the world that you know i could explain it to you i could show it to you and it still wouldn't make sense because we've we've got two water lines like uh, i don't know if you would know what a water line is but if you if you took this glass and you dropped it in a bathtub and you had like half an inch of the glass hanging out so that's your top water line and then you can see my non-alcoholic beer it's like halfway in the glass that's our second water line mm-hmm. and so we uh andrew had designed this system where we could control two different water levels without any mechanical like mechanical assistance it's like this natural uh flow state that self-regulates itself and then the kind of the, the the rest of the structure and the form that goes around it was uh, you know it's pretty straightforward but and so that's always been the core element of the CBN hardware yeah so sticking with that and then uh, you know mucking around with pumps and flow rates and solar compatibility and filters and mesh sizes and you know what what's the what was the perfect mesh size so that we could still get. 55,000 liters of water coming through without it being blocked and, and this type of thing. So there's like a hundred bazillion little variables that like I had no idea about because like I was a, just a designer and not an engineer. So I was just like smashing YouTube every day and just, you know, building it, trying it, working through process of elimination. So there wasn't a huge amount of theory of what I did. It was like, I bought this, um, uh, uh, it was a rainwater tank. It was like, 40,000 liters or something. It was about nine foot by 12 foot. And I filled it up with water. And that was my testing ground because so I, I would build these like sea bins and we would go down to the marina. I'd call Andrew, dude, I need a hand. It was a two person job. You'd go down, throw it in the water, turn it on. The thing would blow up. And it, you know, it took us like 40 minutes to install it. And then we got to get back and pull it out. And it was embarrassing. And 
Were people watching? Like, what the heck are these guys oh, yeah. doing? <laughs> yeah, we, we're chucking this like trash can in the water and swimming, and we'd drop a tool so we'd have to jump in and dive to the bottom, pick up the wrench, and swim it back up and stuff. And you know, I just thought we were like aliens. When you finally got the sea bin, something that worked, what was what was the first place you wanted to take it? What's the first thing you wanted to do? Did you want to tell everybody about it first, or did you want to get one installed in every marina, everywhere you could? Like, what what was the thought process of just getting the word out there and and showing people what what this does? Uh, when when Andrew was still sort of like you know enthusiastic and in it. Uh, in, into the project, we decided we we're going to go to the world's biggest marine and um, marine trade show, which was in Amsterdam. And uh, we were living in Mallorca, so it was like an hour and a half flight. It wasn't too much. But to get like a trade booth cost us 10,000 euros, and we only had like 15,000 euros. <laughs> and so, um, and we thought, well, this is the biggest marina trade show in the world, and we'll just get a booth and we'd. I designed this business model where it was a leasing plan. You didn't have to buy it. We'll come in, put it in your marina to clean it up, blah, blah, blah. And uh, after, at the end of the seven days, like nobody had purchased a subscription. Nobody, like everyone was like, oh, lovely idea, guys. Oh, look, you know, let's go look at this jetty over here or this new boat or something. And, you know, we, all, we didn't get a dollar out of that thing. But what did happen, though, was there was this French guy kept hanging around and, taking photos and asking questions and, you know, just being like over friendly. And we just thought like, you know, it was a bit weird. Maybe he's going to like just steal our idea or something. And, and at the end of the, like the second last day or something, we're like, dude, you know, how can we keep coming and asking us questions? Like, where are you from? What do you do? It's like, Oh, we, we're from Poralu Marine. We're French. And, you know, we, we build jetties and we have 17 countries. We do manufacturing and distribution and we do rotational molded, uh, plastic products and I was like holy sh you know we need a uh, rotational molder and we need a sales and distribution network manufacturing I was like you want to build us some savings and we'll give you a royalty but we're not going to pay anything because we don't have any money <laughs> and uh, uh, they said yes and uh, yeah so we we made this partnership with them and anyway they had this huge stability focus you know we're going to release this to the world down here we're like yep cool uh we get down there the day before i plug it all in and like blew up the pump and nearly killed myself and nearly set the dock on fire actually because the the transformer had melted into the plastic and long story short we got that going we got the media down and all of a sudden it just took off this little like this blog guy somewhere in the south of paris had seen it on 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 a news article uh did a blog about it, showed the video uh, that we'd built. And uh, before we know it, there's like 1.2 billion views across the internet of uh, this garbage can that was put in the water. Uh, so, so what started happening? Orders coming in? Because you're like, you're selling these things, right? You're, you're, you're trying to get them installed. And, and where did you see was like maybe the best place to put them? Because there's a lot of places you could have them. What was the initial idea? Yeah, the initial idea was to, uh, to to sell these things on a leasing arrangement. Well, not even sell it, you know, just lease them out and you just pay monthly. And um, no one really cared about it. This, like, you know, this kind of rich-looking dude just goes, I just want to buy them, Pete. Like, I don't care about this stuff. Like, just sell them to me. I was like, well, cool. <laughs> How many do you want? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so uh, we, we sold, like, 
I don't know, 1,200, 1,300 of these things into 53 countries in two years uh, roughly translates into something like $6 million worth of product that um, was in the water. Initially, we thought that was amazing and, you know, this is going to be great. But, but then uh, we were only getting like one third of the, uh, the, of, of the sale as a royalty and it just was really sporadic and it wasn't enough. And I started to kind of realize that it wasn't a financially sustainable business model and, you know, the bank account was always low and dipping and but that, that led us to the biggest pivot that we've done and it's put us on the map for where we are today. If you can, real quick, tell us a little bit about like what's the stats of a, a typical seabin? What can people expect it to remove? How much, how, like how efficient are these things? I, I'll take it back another little step. But um, so a seabin is a, a trash can that we put in the water. It's a cross between a pool skimmer and a trash can. We put it in the water of a marina where all the trash accumulates naturally. Uh, and we, we only take the top half inch of the surface water. And this is where uh, bottles and, you know, plastic straws and plastic bags and stuff and all the trash accumulates on the surface. We pull it in. It's got a filter in the middle. Uh, the plastic stops at the filter and the water passes through. The stats currently for the 6.0 C-bin is uh, 481 million litres a year. So 481 divided by 4, uh, 481 is 240. 120 million gallons of uh, water per year is what we're filtering. Each one's collecting between 1.4 to 1.6 tonnes of plastic pollution. Uh, this is millions and millions and millions of microplastics and, you know, plastic items. In Sydney alone, you know, it's like 15 billion litres of water, 100 tonnes. In, uh, in Los Angeles, we're capturing one plastic item every four seconds. So what's, uh, I want to ask this, what's been like one of the craziest things you've ever found in a C-bin or someone's ever said it, they, they found? Uh, is, is this a PG or an X-rated show? <laughs> okay. Give, uh, give an answer, give one of each. Cause I might have to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The craziest thing that we found was this, uh, I was in Japan, uh, with our Japanese distributors. It was a ocean festival with something like uh, 900,000 people came through in three days. And uh, yeah, we had this big crowd of like students and, and regular people. And there was this toy sitting in the middle of all this trash that we'd collected. We we're doing like a live demo. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we, we just poked it with a stick. It was like, who knows what this is? <laughs> The best thing that we find, like, well, it's all good because, you know, we're getting out of the water, but, you know, some of the coolest things that we find is, is actually money because the Australian banknotes are plastic and plastic floats. And so we, uh, we have a, a, a team of enviro technicians that go around and service the units daily now. And I'm pretty sure they're pocketing the money because they never tell us that they found it. Um, <laughs> uh, some you, of the you other stuff. You know they're finding it. You know they're finding it. Yeah, they'll show us like the corner of a note that got ripped, like a corner of a fifty or a hundred dollar note or something, or there'll be like three or four five dollar notes, but we're pretty sure it's like five percent of whatever they're finding. Yeah, you know that's actually one thing that probably blows off boats more than anything is just cash, or when people pull things out of their pockets, it flies. I have if there's cash in my pocket and it's not in my wallet. And I pull, it's gonna, it sticks to your phone, sticks to the yep. outside of the wallet. And when you pull it, it just flies away, you know? Yeah. 
I, you know, I the other thing that. I never even thought about that cash. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the best days to check the sea bins are Mondays because you know everyone's out partying on the weekend and you know people are getting drunk and doing whatever and just cruising, pulling your phone out. Money is going in uh, into the water. And the other thing, um, uh, which is really interesting and quite obvious, is that. Well, you find tons of little drug bags, uh, these tiny little clear Ziploc bags that have got like their cocaine or their pills or just whatever drugs it is. And we find thousands of these things. And we've been mapping all of the data that we're collecting and, and it spikes in these little drug bags over Christmas and New Year's Eve and summer. Uh, and then it plateaus during winter. So when it's party time, um, <laughs> we're fighting all this stuff. And uh, yeah. So you mentioned something really important there is uh, is data. Like, was that as important as you thought it was going to be? Or did you realize, oh my gosh, we're, we're getting this unique, never before seen data through all these sea bins being around the world. Um, how, when did you start seeing that was going to be such an important aspect of it? You know, if anyone in, in between 2016 and 2020, if anyone had said, hey, Pete, you know, tell us about your data. And I'll be like, dude, I'm busy. <laughs> Talk to me about real things. You know, I'm busy building something. I'm trying to fix a transformer or I'm fixing a pump or I'm installing or doing something. And uh, I want to talk about real tangible things. And, you know, for me, data was like sort of this non-tangible imaginary thing that just floats around in the background and, you know, you can't touch it or whatever. And like, what's its importance anyway? And then as we were scaling up and kind of, the local state and federal government were like sort of started to sniff around, you know, we're like, Hey, we want your support. Uh, we want you to help fund it. You know, we're paying for it. This is all the crap that's coming off your streets. And, you know, essentially they're cleaning up what you can't keep out of the water. And they're like, well, prove it's ours, you know, and you can't prove it's ours and it comes from somewhere else. And I was thinking like, well, how do I prove it comes from them? And then uh, I started to realize the importance of data you know, if we're going for government funding, like we have to show what we do works. And if we, how to do that is through data. And so, yeah, one of the craziest things that happened was that I was, I was really pissed off that this, uh, you know, the, the CEO of the city had told me like, you can't prove that this trash is from us and we do enough anyway and blah, blah, blah. And I was down on the dock doing something with a sea bin and I seen this like white bit of paper that looked like a receipt, uh, like a restaurant receipt. And I picked it up and turned it over and it was a parking ticket. Uh, the parking tickets are, you know, it looks like a receipt. They're actually plastic and they got printed on. And on the parking ticket, it's got the name of the issuing authority, which was the city of Sydney. Here's your proof. <laughs> yeah, it's got the date of the offense and it's got the street, like the cross-coordinate street thing. What I don't know what you call it. but um, And I was like, holy, like this is where it came from. And so we... We, we started to see that we're collecting a lot of these parking tickets. And I, so I tell the team, get on Google Maps and start pinning this stuff. And so we would pin where it, where it was issued and then we'd pin where it was captured, where the sea bin was. And we got like 176 parking tickets now. And it shows us that all the trash is coming off the city streets, the central business district. It's going into the drains. It's going into the stormwater drains and it's flowing into the water. And so the trash is not coming from the marinas it's coming off the city streets. So humans are the problem. Uh, and when you've got lots of humans, then you have more of a problem. You know, you have waste and uh, waste leakage and, yeah, that type of thing. 
So the data has just been insane. And then what we didn't realize was that nobody else in the world had this data. Nobody had put the trash can in the water before to filter the water 24-7, 365 days a year. And nobody had done that or you know, hired scientists to start counting things. And so United Nations environment, you know, they're like, well, hey, like nobody's got this information. The, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency here in Australia, they didn't have anything. Uh, I asked them, you know, do you have something we can look at? I don't want to reinvent the wheel. And they told me that you guys are writing the book on plastic pollution upstream. And I was like, wow. Like, this is amazing. And so in a very evolution, organic kind of way, we've become a data-driven company, which is really weird because, you know, I need to, like, kick the tires on things. You, you, you have a bag of tools, you know, hand tools, <laughs> and, and power tools that you want to use, not, you know, spreadsheets you want to go through. Well, so, you know, we'll wrap up in just a minute, but, like, data collection with a C-bin, you know, that sounds like computer work or sitting at a screens and adding up numbers and whatnot and plotting graphs and whatnot. But really, it's going through trash piece by piece. Tell us about how do you collect data? What does that look like? Because it, it requires looking at what's in the bin. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, we've sort of turned our messaging into something a little bit more sophisticated. You know, we're doing impact data and blah, blah, blah. And you know, a lot of our supporters are like, why are you guys screwing around with data? How come you're not cleaning up? And the, the answer is we are. Uh, we are cleaning up, but cleanup isn't a solution. I mean, you got the, the leaky tap in the bathtub, the bath's overflowing. You know, do you just keep cleaning up, mopping up, or do you turn off the tap? And so this is the argument that's happening in the Enviro space. You know, turn off the tap to plastic pollution, but you still have to clean up. So we're doing both. And at the time, no one did both. Like it was pretty obvious. Uh, you either you're very academic and research based, and you just focused on, you know, the I don't know research academic things, and then or you had beach cleanups, take three for the sea, or you know these other not for profits, and we just like we'll, we'll do both, and um, and so the sea bin, you know, it operates twenty four seven. We collect all this, um, you know, the, these plastic items, and so our viro technicians will come around each day. Uh, they'll do a. They'll take a daily weight of every single uh, filter that's filled up with the, the trash, and then we've got 34 units in the water operational, and 16 of the units each week we take a data sample. We sent. We built a, a a shipping container and turned it into a science lab. We've got two scientists in it, and so we we put these in these big buckets, uh, like those Homer pails that you buy at Home Depot. Take them to the lab. And we freeze them, and then when the uh, the scientists are ready, they uh, what do you call them? They defrost the uh, the trash. Uh, they put it in the oven. <laughs> Why do you have to freeze the trash to uh, preserve it in like the state it's in? No, nah, because it stinks. God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so that kills that kills things. Yeah. So you you can't get to these sixteen um, you know buckets of trash. Uh, you can't do it in a day. It takes you a week. And so by the time you've had a week, you know, you get to the last bucket, the thing's just festering and yeah, it's oh gross. God, I never, is that something you even thought of when you first started? Oh, what is our lab <laughs> going to need? Free giant freezers. Oh, we, we just gave them all the buckets and, and they were dealing with like stinky trash that they were complaining about. Well, like, well, 
So how do we preserve this? How do we make your life better? Like this is gross. And you, and you were like, you did read the job description, right? You're well, going it wasn't in trash. the job description. Oh. Yeah, well, well, yeah, we didn't add like it stunk and you know all this sort of stuff. But um, I think I think someone had opened up a bucket and it had a dead fish in it that had maggots and stuff, and that was the moment. Or oh my god, I can't even imagine how bad that would stink. Your lab was probably just toxic. Well, we didn't even have a lab. We were doing this on the street. We we're doing it on the jetty. <laughs> we we're doing it like. You know, we had volunteers that were doing it in their garages and stuff. Um, and we were like, well, like, this, is, this isn't good. We need to do it better. And so we come up with all these protocols and, you know, how do we, how do we build a lab? And, and uh, yeah, so anyway, they put it in the freezer, defrost it when they need to do the sample. Then they put it in the oven, dry it out. Uh, and then they start counting things. They, you know, that they, if it's a big, um, if it's a big catch, we'll put it on a, a three foot by three foot tarp. We'll put sixteen quadrants on it. We'll do a. Uh, we'll take three random squares, and we'll only count in those three squares, and then we'll times it by uh, whatever we need out of the sixteen or something. And then, because you can't count every single thing, and so uh, so we do this, and then we um, and uh, yeah, this is what literally is is giving us the data, and uh, and then we're starting to see patterns with it as well. We're starting to see if uh, if a northerly wind blows, the trash accumulates on the southerly side. If it blows westerly, it pushes it out to sea. Uh, if it blows easterly, it pushes it all back into the harbour. Yeah, and we, we've gotten to the point where we can, uh, we'll see spikes in the trash, we'll see weather patterns, and then we can start to predict next week there's going to be a rainstorm, there's going to be southerly winds um, at X amount of breeze and X amount of rain, and we can start to predict what's going to happen with the trash it's pretty cool actually it's very cool it's awesome and it's so cool to me that you didn't expect this part of it the data what is the state of seabin in the sense of like how many are out there how many do you want out there for continued data and, and uh data capture it, like what 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 is the plan moving forward i know you were in the middle of like growth through through this investment but like what what's kind of uh that dream that seabin can be yeah, yeah, just scaling. Like we um, in 2020, we, we we essentially cut off the old business model and we designed a new business model where, hey, we're going to clean up entire cities and we're going to do it for free. And it was like, well, how the hell do you do this for free? <laughs> and we designed a, a corporate sponsorship model where uh, we would clean up and then a corporate or a business would be like, well, we want to support the ocean, but, you know, we make beer or we make bikes or hats or something. And so you guys support, you know, you guys clean up. So how do we support you? And we're like, well, we'll put your name on the sea bin. We'll give you, you know, all these, like, we'll build all these beautiful assets. We'll give you impact reports and we'll give you the data. Um, so if you pay us X amount of money, we'll filter X amount of uh, gallons of water and, and we know that you'll, uh, say, mitigate 6 million plastic items from getting to the ocean. And so we designed this business model that we didn't even know if it would work or not, raised some investment money, and it gave us like a year and a half of runway, and we just went for it, and then it started to work. And and our old clients who used to purchase the sea bins office were like, well, hey, we're going to do this for free. Let us buy back the sea bin and then we'll hire people to look after it. All you got to do is like give us access to your marina and, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep it clean. You don't have to pay for it anymore. And they're like, hell yeah, 
like how <laughs> and we told them and they're like wow you know like this is great you know we're starting to work with local and state government us epa for example over there uh, we still get pushback from the cities because the first thing they do is like you know you can't prove it's ours and blah 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 like no one wants to be made accountable and so fortunately we have this like private sector business model with you know companies like athletic brewing and you know, multinationals and all these other people that are like, well, we want to support the ocean. So we were going to support you guys because you guys have got transparent and credible data because greenwashing is like, it's just hectic these days. Um, and it's really destroying businesses that, you know, want to support good things, uh, but the values are misaligned with this greenwashing nonsense. So, wow, yeah. What would you say... Um, let's jump into, let's jump into a, a, a kind of a few rapid fire. I'll keep it short just because I know we're at the end of our time here, but what would you say the biggest goal of CBIN that hasn't yet been achieved is? Uh, we, we want to scale into a hundred cities by 2050. We're at two. We've only been at it for three years. So we've got, you know, a few more years to, to get there. We've done the maths. It works out. And, and what does scaling at a city look like? Is that one C-bin in each city or is that like 50 in each oh, city? Oh, no, no. We're, yeah, we're, we're talking about between 30 to 100 C-bins um, per city. Yeah, so th there'll, there'll be a, a core team of between, say, 6 to 15 or 20 employees in biotechnicians, scientists, community um program managers, this type of thing. Like we basically, we built the model in Sydney. We executed it. This is our third year. We dialed it in and we worked out, you know, how we can like just copy and paste, land and expand city by city. Um, we just got to slightly tweak things a little bit for cultural differences and political and a few other things. So, but yeah, so land and expand into a few, uh, 100 cities by 2050. Repair the planet. Repair the planet. Man, I live right on the coast. I'm excited to see one in my local marina. What what is what is some advice you have for somebody who has an idea like you did or is looking for that purpose and wants to do something? That's how we got started here at Athletic Brewing. That's how a lot of the people in our community operate. Um, but sometimes those things don't happen right away. You know, it sometimes like you were saying before, it takes time. What's some advice for somebody that's in the middle of that searching like you were? Yeah, look, um, don't don't put too much pressure on yourself to like find the meaning of life or purpose. I mean, like I I feel like you've got to go through the pain to find the goodness and you know, you've got to go through no purpose to find it. Um, but say you got your idea and you know, you want to start something, the best advice that I could give is, you know, believe in yourself and make a plan. Uh, if you don't make a plan, you're screwed. Because like say, you know, I'm going to create CBIN, but I don't have a plan. I don't realize that I need $100,000 to last me for 12 months or 20, you know, 24 months. And so I'm going to quit my job and I'm just going to go out guns blazing. And all of a sudden I'm out of money and I've got to go ask for my job back. And so, I, you know, I'm not going to follow my dream. <laughs> and yeah, so make a plan, you know, just, just like, what is it? How do you eat an elephant? Bit bite by bite. Uh, that yeah. doesn't go well with the vegans, but, uh, you know, as an analogy, it's like, <laughs> you know, just baby steps, make a plan. And, you know, if, you, if you're daydreaming enough about something every day, like you should follow it, but make a plan. And the other thing is like dive in. I, I know a few people that have been talking about their ideas for years and you're like, why don't you just do it? <laughs> 
oh, you know, I'm not ready and I need this and I need that. And like my greatest super power was naivety. If I had known how much pain and suffering and how hard, you know, doing this, like conquering the world for plastic pollution with Seabin was like, I don't know if I would have done it. <laughs> you know, just, like, <laughs> stuck with boat building and like being bored Traveled or something. But, you know, I don't know. But like naivety, like really helped a lot. And asking questions and asking stupid questions, like has helped so much. But just take that first step. You know, what is it? The journey of a thousand miles begins with this first step. With that big, big plan off in the distance and that you're pursuing every day, what's a daily habit you stick to that helps you stay on track, stay ready? Oh, man, I, I really suck at daily habits unless they have like an addictive, you know, component or element to it. So, you know, coffee, for example, I, I haven't drank in like a real, I haven't drunk, sorry, drinking is not really a word. I haven't drunk caffeine for like probably six months because uh, it, it started to give me an anxiety, which I'd never felt before in my life. But, you know, so I do decaf and uh, it still gives me like, you know, a sense of like, I don't know, some kind of social thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad with routines, but I do know that when I'm stressed, I need to go for a surf. Um, mm. Like, yeah, I, I need to get in the water. If there's no surf, I'll go for a swim. Just get in the water, switch off. Um, but it, it's really hard to do sometimes. Um, but I'm really good with routines. Like I, I get distracted so easily. <laughs> it happens. I, I'm I'm the same way. Well, uh, what does um you know? This show's called Without Compromise, and uh, we believe that you do anything unique, different, you got to do it without compromise. You got to live that way. What What does it mean to you to live without compromise? Yeah, it's a lot. It's all about your values. Like I'm, I, I'd like to think I'm pretty flexible but when something starts compromising your values like you just pull a hard stop and just follow your gut and just say no you know like i'm not going to compromise we've had big oil companies trying to purchase the company and you know for like so much money and uh it's like well no you know i'm not going to compromise the value the you know integrity like our values and this type of thing just for money and it's happened a lot like people have offered us heaps of money on multiple occasions and they were doing it for the wrong reasons. And it was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to compromise. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to our financial success one day. We'll, you know, we'll get there, but you know, we're going to do it our way. And the best thing that I ever did was read the book, let my people go surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. It's not really about going surfing. Like there is a bit in there, but it's about flexibility and sticking to your guns and, and so that that's I, I just wanted to be like a Vaughn. Like he's such a badass. He's like what five foot one or something. And you know, he's got the presence of like a twelve foot giant and he takes on governments and he built a billion dollar company and you know, he created this thing called for profit conservation with Doug Tompkins and, and I was like, Well, I just want to be like those guys. So, you know, I kind of when, you know, pretty evil or dark things cross our path. I'm like, what would Yvonne do? Yeah. So I, I just sort of use that as my moral compass, I guess. Well, there you have it, folks. You can learn more about CBIN on Instagram, their website, learn more about their investment round that's getting ready to close. All that's in the show notes. And if you want to hear more about Athletic Brewing and learn more about our Two for the Trails program or any of our non-alcoholic craft beer, go to athleticbrewing.com. You can order it right there or find a store near you using our store finder. All right, let's keep those trails 
and oceans clean. 